Hello, and welcome to your next episode of Fixing Fitness with Kelly, the show that serves up real talk about fitness with a focus on why traditional fitspo just doesn't serve women in their 30s. Let's talk about what we can really do to get results that make all the effort worth it. Get more on the website at kellymarieroach.com, including exclusive access to my head-to-toe mobility routine when you download my free guide to the five worst exercise cues in the fitness industry. And tune into the Kelly M. Roach YouTube channel for weekly videos offering fresh perspectives on fixing fitness topics. Hey, you guys, welcome back for the final episode of season two of the Fixing Fitness with Kelly podcast. And today's topic is really cool. It is cool in breadth, depth, variety. So first and foremost, I want to send out a special thank you to the dear friend and listener who suggested this topic to me. And you'll see very quickly, and I'll talk a little bit more at the end about, we basically put a microscopic scratch on a fraction of an iota of available information about alcohol and its effect on us physically, mentally, emotionally, all of the variety of ways that it does affect us. But it's a really interesting topic for the fitness community, especially those of us that are perhaps a little bit past 35 because there seems to be a general lack of consensus on how it actually does affect us. Is it truly as horrible for us as some reports say? There's other reports that suggest it might actually have some health benefits. So um, knowing that I'm covering just a tiny, tiny fraction of information that is available out there in today's podcast, I still think there's a lot of really good stuff in here, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So here we go, season two, episode 10. When I started my broad search for scientific literature on this topic, my first search entry was alcohol effects. And on the very first page of results, I saw studies entitled Effects of Alcohol on Human Aggression, Effects of Alcohol on the Heart, Neuroendocrinological Effects of Alcohol, Alcohol Effects on Performance, Effects on Human Risk-Taking, Effects on Neurobehavioral Functions and the Brain, and the Effects of Alcohol on the Nervous System. So clearly there are many and varied physical and mental impacts of alcohol that have been thoroughly studied. And the overarching message seems to be that alcohol is bad. The now infamous Gates Foundation study, which was released in 2022, even found that no amount of alcohol is safe for those under age 40. And the purists in the fitness industry agree. But there's a whole other camp of health-minded individuals that take the everything-in-moderation approach and embrace the lifestyle balance of being committed to health and fitness while partaking in a wide array of flavorful foods and cocktails, not for their nutritional value, but purely for the enjoyment of it. With that said, I don't think it's possible to say who is right in this debate because what's right is highly subjective. So today's episode takes a strictly objective approach to looking at some of the ways alcohol affects us. And to keep this from being a three-hour episode, I'm going to narrow our focus to look specifically at the short-term effects of moderate alcohol consumption in the mind and body. I found a surprising amount of evidence that there is a positive association between those who exercise and those who self-report as moderate drinkers. Meaning, the more likely it is that a person exercises, the more likely it also is that they consume moderate amounts of alcohol. 
This is defined as four to seven drinks per week for women and eight to 14 drinks per week for men. This seemed counterintuitive until I found a study that sought to explain the overlap between the psychological and physical effects of exercise and alcohol. Anyone who enjoys a few drinks now and again knows that a little bit of booze can make you feel good in the moment. We all refer to this as getting a buzz, right, without pushing far enough to reach full intoxication. The study discussed how both exercise and alcohol consumption provide stimuli for the brain's reward circuitry. This circuitry developed to respond to natural rewards that promote survival, such as sex, food, or exercise. Now, exercise is a natural stimulus that releases dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, and endorphins. And as it turns out, Alcohol is one of the many ways humans have figured out how to artificially stimulate the neural reward system to produce the same result. This is one of the reasons that exercise is often used as an intervention for addiction. The idea is that exercise may trigger the brain's reward circuitry and act as a substitute for the addictive substances or behaviors, decreasing cravings as a result. Physically, Alcohol and exercise have overlapping effects on the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis, or HPA axis, which is a key system involved in energy metabolism and stress response. Exercise is a voluntary and predictable form of stress, which stabilizes the HPA function and, by extension, seems to support anxiety regulation. Moderate alcohol consumption also affects the HPA axis and reduces anxiety. The authors of this review posit that those who engage regularly in exercise may also be more likely to consume moderate levels of alcohol to feel these positive effects from multiple sources. This seems to paint a pretty picture of moderate alcohol use. Basically, humans have hacked our own reward system to artificially stimulate it with less work. But we also know that alcohol can have negative impacts on the body, even when we don't overdo it. Based on my limited research, and note that I am one non-scientist, not a team of experts, it seems that this comes down primarily to the way the body metabolizes alcohol and the byproducts of those processes. While we commonly associate alcohol metabolism with the liver, it's important to note that it also takes place in the stomach, GI tract, pancreas, and even the brain. These processes, all the enzymes involved, and the byproducts that are created get very scientific very quickly. The authors of one study blessedly summarized in layman's terms for us the following. The different pathways of ethanol metabolism described above have numerous detrimental consequences that contribute to the tissue damage and diseases seen in alcoholic patients. These consequences include oxygen deficits in the liver, interaction between alcohol metabolism byproducts and other cell components, resulting in the formation of harmful compounds, formation of highly reactive oxygen-containing molecules that can damage other cell components, and changes in the ratio of NADH to NAD+, which are two compounds found in cells responsible for many important cellular reactions. These things all contribute to tissue damage and disease. But it isn't the tissue damage that you're noticing when you wake up in the morning after you've knocked back a few. And in our late 30s, at least for me, I do mean only a few. 
Nowadays, I might wake up with a hangover after one or two glasses of wine or have three beers and wake up the next day fresh as a daisy. So let's talk alcohol hangovers, as they are probably the most notorious short-term effect of alcohol we all experience. Now, this is where it gets fun. How many hangovers have you tried to cure with hydration, electrolytes, food, coffee, pain medications, or some other well-known holistic cure, only to find that none of them actually work and time is the only surefire cure? Would it shock you to learn that hangovers are not a result of dehydration? While it's true that dehydration typically comes along with a hangover, it's actually independent of the physical experience of a hangover, which one study colorfully describes as, quote, general misery that may last more than 24 hours. Studies examining the biological changes present during a hangover are surprisingly sparse, but most of them have bumped up against the same discovery significant changes in immune system parameters, meaning that both the physical and cognitive elements of a hangover are actually related to immune system response. One of the markers of this is an increase in the amount of pro-inflammatory cytokines present during a hangover. Cytokines are a type of signaling protein released by immune cells and other cell types in response to infection or cell damage. And remember, we were just talking about the way that alcohol can cause tissue damage at a cellular level. Additional studies show a significant interaction between immune system function and the activity of the central nervous system. Of particular interest is the finding that cytokines communicate with the brain. What happens is that these signaling molecules tell the brain to increase cerebral cytokine production. Now, this is important because cytokine receptors are especially dense in the hippocampus. That's the area of the brain vital to memory function. The presence of cytokines has been shown to reduce memory function, which may partially explain memory loss related to alcohol use. Furthermore, cytokines are involved in behaviors related to sickness, including weakness, inability to concentrate, decreased appetite, reduced activity, sleepiness, and loss of interest in usual activities, all behaviors commonly associated with hangovers. Of course, all of this doesn't take into account the differences in severity or duration of hangovers. Some factors related to that include biological sex and ability to metabolize alcohol based upon that, sleep duration and quality after drinking, and type of alcohol consumed. For instance, some studies suggest that it takes fewer drinks, including flavors and artificial colors, i.e. mixers, to cause a hangover than drinks that don't. Other factors include the presence of polyphenols, antioxidants, and vitamins present in the drink consumed. So taken as a whole, it would seem like any alcohol consumption can lead to cumulative long-term negative effects, and in the short term, your immune system really doesn't like it. However, there is apparently a long-standing, poorly researched, and little understood debate about whether moderate alcohol use actually can have a positive effect on your immune system. But these studies have serious limitations and are far from conclusive. For instance, a study that showed moderate consumption of wine to have an anti-inflammatory effect concluded that it was the ethanol in the beverages that caused this, 
but didn't take into account the high content of polyphenols or antioxidants in the beverages consumed. The science sort of runs away in a downward spiral from here. There really doesn't seem to be a widely accepted conclusion one way or the other about the cumulative effects of alcohol on the immune system, and by extension for short-term considerations, hangovers. Now, my initial thought when I read about the effect of alcohol on the immune system was, well, if it's causing the body to have the same response it would have to infection or cell damage, that's probably not a good thing, and we should avoid alcohol use. How could this possibly test as having a positive impact on immune system function? But hang on, isn't this the basic idea behind vaccines? Who here has gotten a vaccine that's made them feel like garbage while their immune system responds? The vaccine response is like a training camp for when our bodies encounter the actual infection. But note that when you are actually infected, you still feel really sick. It's just that now your immune system knows what to do. But you wouldn't knowingly go and expose yourself over and over again to an illness you were vaccinated against just because you know that your immune system is smart enough to handle it, right? And yet it seems like that's exactly what we do when we consume alcohol. We've all experienced the morning after promise to ourselves that we will never drink again, which we inevitably break because the immediate effects of our last round of drinking have already subsided, and we have yet to see the accumulation of long-term effects that could be waiting for us down the line. I'd liken this to cigarette smoking. Just one cigarette will give you a nicotine buzz, might upset your lung tissues for a few hours, and probably isn't going to leave you with long-term damage. But even regular smokers can apply that rationale to each and every cigarette they smoke. And yet, just because you can't see the cumulative effects yet doesn't mean they aren't there. So, now that we've talked a bit about the mental impacts of moderate drinking via the reward pathways of the brain and the physical impacts, let's turn briefly to look at the emotional impacts of moderate alcohol consumption. There's a popular hypothesis that alcohol induces a sequential stimulation depression effect, meaning that at first it stimulates emotional state and subsequently depresses it. And while this hasn't been proven scientifically, I think most of us who have attended a girl's night out understand this progression from the start to the end of the evening. And what I found more interesting were the handful of studies I came across that examined not the effect of alcohol consumption on emotional regulation, but on the correlation between emotional dysregulation and alcohol consumption. Problems with emotional regulation have been sorted into a scale and include the following six areas of emotional functioning. Non-acceptance of emotional responses, difficulty engaging in goal-directed behavior, impulse control difficulties, lack of emotional awareness, limited access to emotion regulation strategies, and lack of emotional clarity. In one study, Impulse control difficulties were positively related to the number of drinks consumed during the week among active drinkers. Non-acceptance of emotional responses, impulse control difficulties, lack of emotional clarity, and difficulties engaging in goal-directed behavior were all positively associated with the number of what the authors referred to as alcohol-related consequences. In another study, the authors found that the ability to regulate negative emotions was the only factor that resulted in no subsequent alcohol consumption when the other factors were controlled for. 
And in a study specifically about the effects of alcohol, emotional regulation, and emotional arousal on the dating aggression intentions of men and women, the results showed that, quote, alcohol intoxication and anger arousal have been implicated in the occurrence of aggression, and the ability to regulate one's emotions may interact with both alcohol intoxication and emotional arousal to predict dating aggression. Individuals who consumed or believed they'd consumed alcohol expressed more verbal and physical aggression intentions than those who received no alcohol. Those with higher emotional arousal, who were better able to suppress their emotions, expressed fewer verbal and physical aggression intentions than those with lower arousal. The implication of these and studies like them is that our ability to regulate our emotions in a sober state is a bigger predictor of how alcohol will impact our emotions than the other way around. While alcohol is categorized as a depressant, I've long thought of it as an amplifier. If you're in a great mood when you drink, chances are good you're going to be in a more obnoxious state of good mood after you've had a few. And if you're feeling down and you think a few glasses of wine will comfort you, it's more likely that you'll be crying on the couch before too long. I have zero scientific evidence to support this specifically, but it's been my personal experience, and I think that what these studies are saying about emotional regulation tracks. If you're managing your emotions poorly, when you consume alcohol, they're going to find a way out. If you have high levels of emotional functioning in those six areas I mentioned earlier, then chances are good that alcohol consumption may not affect your mood as wildly as it may affect someone else's. So we've covered a lot of ground in today's episode, and I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of information that's out there about how alcohol affects us. And it's kind of wild that we've been consuming alcohol for thousands of years and still don't really have a grasp on what it does to us and why it does what it does. And yet it is a widely used, socially sanctioned intoxicant when consumed in moderation. I said at the outset that I would approach today's episode as objectively as possible, but I never mind closing out by sharing my own opinion. And my thoughts on alcohol are kind of like my thoughts about any food product that could have long-term ill effects. Highly processed packaged foods, high sugar, high fat, baked goods, red meat, bacon, and more. I have worked to create a good relationship with my food intake and with my body so that I know when I've had enough of something. I will eat the cake, but I don't feel compelled to eat every last bite if I know that it's going to upset my stomach to do so. Similarly, I enjoy an occasional wine tasting or a seasonal beer or a craft cocktail, but I really try not to go past a mild buzz. I think being a 100% purist 100% of the time when it comes to what we consume is a futile effort if the goal is to keep your body 100% clean, pure, and in optimal health. Because if you're eating 100% clean all of the time, but you wear makeup every day or apply sunless tanner, you've already lost. Likewise, if you breathe near a running car, dye your hair, or even order certain furniture from online. In a perfect world, none of these delicious, enjoyable things would be harmful. But toxins are everywhere in our world. Now, I'm not actively racing toward death and disease, but I've found a sustainable, consistent path that works 
for me. And hopefully some of the information in today's podcast can help you find a similar path for you. I hope that you guys enjoyed digging into that information as much as I did. I had so much fun reading those studies and going through those studies and their citation studies. It was just at one after another, after another, after another. Um, and it, it did get really in-depth really quickly, as I mentioned in the podcast. I did just want to close out by elaborating a little bit more on that 100% purist concept that I mentioned there at the end. So what I was getting at there is that if it's your goal to keep your body as a temple, right, just as clean as possible, and so you aren't eating foods with dyes in them, you're not eating any processed foods, and you're eliminating alcohol from your diet in that pursuit of internal cleanliness, I suppose. If you are living in the modern world, you already are falling short of that goal because it is impossible, I believe, to keep your entire body inside and out 100% pure if you do any of the things that I mentioned in that list and more. Makeup can have toxins in it. Sunless tanners, too, can have maybe not toxins, but you've got dyes and things in there that are not natural or purist, right? So if you are eliminating alcohol from your diet, particularly for that reason, for that goal, understand that that's sort of counterproductive. Whatever your reasons are for drinking, not drinking, consuming alcohol, not consuming alcohol, none of this is designed to push you one way or the other. This is just information to be shared, to be viewed from a new perspective. And honestly, the immune system angle was one that I had never considered and wasn't aware of. So I found that very informative for my own immune system response and how often I find myself, you know, falling ill during flu, cold and flu season. And um, again, it's just one aspect of it. I want to make that clear as well. There was nothing that I, that I read in the studies that conclusively said this is like a one-to-one thing, that if you have a really strong immune system, you're not going to get hangovers, you're less likely to have long-term cumulative effects of alcohol, whereas if you have a weak immune system, it's the opposite. As I tried to mention several times throughout, there are so many factors that are constantly being examined, constantly being studied in this field, and this was just one angle that I chose to present to you guys in this podcast today because it was the one that I found the most interesting, and um, I wanted to talk about it. So with that, thank you all so much for listening. This closes out season two of the Fixing Fitness with Kelly podcast. And what I did between seasons one and season two, I took two weeks off. I had a week to kind of take a step back from all of the social posting. And then I had a week to sort of plan topics for the upcoming season and get a podcast recorded. So that is my plan for now as well. And if you guys have a topic that you're curious about that you would like me to do some research on, find me on Instagram at kellym.roach. Reach out to me there. I would love to hear from you. And again, thank you to my dear friend and listener who suggested this topic for today's podcast. I do hope that I did it justice. That is where I'm going to leave you for season two. Thank you so much for helping me grow this podcast and this community. And I will see you guys in my next episode. Bye-bye.